0: I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to to Open2Debate, brought to you by Interact. Despite a steady stream of news about the politics of the day, each of us might be forgiven for being unsure what a member of parliament actually does. Even members themselves, from time to time, seem unsure. Are they lawmakers, government foot soldiers, opposition sentries, community service persons, issue advocates, some admixture of each? The fact is that the role of an MP often depends on the member, the party, and the context of the day. But as elusive as a simple rundown of the gig may be, it's still worth asking. Can members of Parliament break the mold? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, Member of Parliament for Beaches East York and Member of the Liberal Party of Canada. Let's start with why I wanted to speak with you specifically about being an mp you're a liberal but you have good working relationships with members from other parties including the new democrats Uh, you you speak your mind and and you seem to have productive relationships on top of it all you you push back against your party often that that's seen as a novelty in our system but i'm curious what your overarching philosophy of the job is how you approach it how you approach being an mp how you approach life inside the house what does the duty entail uh, how do you conceive of it
1: all easy questions.
0: <laughs> 15 seconds, go. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a question period. Now, I suppose I studied politics and political philosophy for a long time before then practicing law and then throwing my hand in the ring for a nomination and being lucky to serve Beaches East York, where I grew up and live with my family. So I suppose there are a number of competing. Considerations when you think through how you're going to approach a particular vote or approach a particular issue. Obviously, your constituents' views matter, the evidence matters, and then your own conscience matters. And the political party which you represent matters too, in the sense that you're a member of a party because you might not agree with everything that was put into a platform because those are very large documents and with many different inputs, but you agree with the overall philosophy and the values. And so when you Get down to making a decision. There are there was a commitment by now Prime Minister Trudeau when he was running for liberal leader. And it was a commitment that was appealing to me, which was to empower parliamentarians. That we have too long seen this top-down form of government here in Canada, where the executive makes the decisions and parliamentarians are seen as secondary and they're to support the executive. And he committed to freer votes in the House of Commons, which meant there would be whipped votes or the expectation would be that you would vote with the party in government. If they were platform promises, that makes sense. You knock on doors, you make promises. You should adhere to those promises a matter of honesty and trust to, as it relates to human rights or charter rights considerations that you're not going to vote against uh, a matter, you know, you're not going to support a bill that would be contrary to the charter or three confidence matters, including budget matters. And, you know, if you're going to walk away from a budget issue or you're going to vote against the government as as relates to confidence, then you you ought to find a different party or you you ought to find a different job. And so those are the three categories where there's an expectation of alignment. And beyond that, then the the understanding is there's a lot of freedom. Now, there are still pushes and pulls to it and that you want to support your colleagues. You don't necessarily want to make it harder on colleagues. And there is that team dynamic, but you're also or my is my view at least you're you also have to be focused on what the right answers are where you can find them and you also have to be focused on the different kinds of teams that you play for including your the you know in my case beaches east york and my constituents and the volunteers that got me there and the voters who i represent so there are a number of competing considerations and they shake out in different ways and you you just kind of do
0: your best yeah and and i think you know uh, it, it I want to get into the the friction with the party in a moment and and how that gets covered because I have a lot of irritation about how that gets covered by folks but uh, first I want to dig into the, the the something you've already touched on which is the so sort of trustee model in which we return an MP to exercise their judgment as an individual and the and the delegate model which is you you simply there to represent the will such as it is of your constituency, of course. There's no way to perfectly do either of those things. There's always going to be a trade off. Right. But when you're when you're cycling through an issue, uh, how do you balance those two? I mean, what are you thinking of first? Do, do, do those competing models even cross your mind? Is it a jumble? What's that process look like?
1: So I don't see them as competing models. In so far as I mean, they're competing models in theory, but in practice, I view the trustee model as the appropriate model. So. I raise concerns that my constituents raise where outside of the voting context, there are many issues if constituents are affected in acute situations like deportations or they have questions that they want to put to various ministers' offices, then your job on their behalf, you're raising issues and you are trying to solve their problems. But as it relates to representing their interests in the House, if there is Uh, an issue like take climate change. And if my constituents seriously, thankfully they don't, but if they seriously, you know, question the science behind climate change and said, you're moving too fast, too quickly and slow down and we don't support the direction of your government, I would say, thanks for your feedback. You've got an opportunity to vote me out of the next election, but I'm there to represent your interests and also to represent the best interests of Canada, and and in some cases, the best interests of citizens around the world, if we're talking about climate change and and, and matters of international human rights. But I'm there to do what I think is right in keeping with the evidence, and you don't don't dismiss views, and you certainly try to take an education role, but you're not simply there, if your constituents say jump, you're not there to jump in, in, in the way they want you to if it's contrary to the evidence, and contrary to what 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 is right in the end,
0: right. And, and so you mentioned accountability there, which seems to be something that's often left out of these discussions. I mean, if people don't like it, they they can exercise the right to vote for somebody else the next time around, right? I mean, it's you know, I I think that's often sort of lost on people that. Uh, alongside the idea that it's just sort of impossible to have a a central will of the constituency day to day anyway, right? It's not like people are, this is an old political science reality that I like to remind people of that goes back to Philip Converse, you know, from the 1960s. It's not like people are walking around with fully formed ideologies in their heads that are consistent, right? That's right. (laughs) Fitting it all
1: together. And and that's it. And 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 by the way, that's a, a real challenge when there are very loud and vocal constituents. There are constituents who regularly email our office or call our office. And it, it is an imperfect science, but you do try to make best effort attempts to, and harder in a virtual world, frankly, where we're not able to do the door knocking that we typically do in a summer and check in with constituents in quite the same way. But you do try to get beyond just your own inbox and reach out to, to see what the view is uh, among constituents. Because it does it does matter in terms of informing what directions you take. So in some cases, for example, you know, my constituents in Beaches East York obviously are affected differently than my father-in-law's riding of, of Sarnia lambton where farming interests don't arise in the same way, whereas housing interests do. And so the, there, there are issues that will end up, ultimately, I will be an advocate for because constituents have brought them to my attention. But if we're talking about as votes arise... I think then constituents help inform one's decision, but they don't determine one's decision. And and you're right on the accountability front insofar as and we should, as politicians, feel more comfortable losing elections, I think, because I, I worry sometimes, and I felt this way about the Harper government, but, but I do worry more broadly about politics, that we we in politics make decisions and make promises in order to win elections, and we don't have ideas that we want to deliver on and win elections to pursue those ideas, right? We kind of get it backwards sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, on top of it, I mean, I, I want to briefly go back to this this sort of contact with the constituents point. Uh, you know, I haven't door-knocked in a long time and probably never will door-knock again. Uh, but what I did, uh, it was for, for liberals. It was for Peter Adams and for Jeff Leal provincially. Way back in the day when I was a, a young liberal in Peterborough. But, uh, you know, it was fascinating to see that process of engagement and then also the process of engagement through town halls. And one of the things I took away years later was that it's, they're not really representative processes, right? I mean, they, they certainly do serve a certain kind of function, but when you're at a town hall especially, it's not exactly like you're guaranteed a representative sample of the of the population. And plus, you know, there are certain people, as you sort of suggested, who are more outspoken than others, and there's a risk there, I think that you get uh, a sort of disproportionate uh, sense of of what's what based on who's speaking out. And I wonder if when you're you're considering issues, I mean, is that something you're consciously thinking of, of, you know, that there's a risk that those who are the loudest seem to stand out as the most representative of the community, even though they may not be?
1: Hmm. I mean, you are cognizant of Not necessarily just reacting to ten emails and and to reacting to a a small but vocal constituency potentially, but you do and I I guess I break it apart again. I mean, there are issues that one raises and one one wants to make sure that one's reflecting views to the government. So if we've received hundreds of emails on a topic, the government should know, even if that includes a number of people who regularly write in because they're still constituents and their voices still matter and their and their values still matter, but. I am cognizant of the town hall format and look a successful town hall is 200 people that would be a, a pretty successful town hall and there are over hundred thousand people who live in beaches East York so the number of people who have the time even even if they do have the interest but the number of people who have the time to get in touch and attend a town hall and you know the number of people who will email throughout the last five years that I've seen who who will say I don't usually contact a member of parliament but I'm writing about this issue. I mean, there are are those people, and they they do care. It's just they're busy with their own lives. They've got kids, they've got jobs, and they're occasionally in touch. But uh, so I don't know that it is, there's, you don't dismiss one's views, but I think one is cognizant in this job that you've got to be careful to not react and and jump up and down and say, here are 10 emails, and we must do something about it, because it's not necessarily the case that that's reflective of the overall community.
0: Right. And that that sort of gives us a sense of of the external relationship. I want to talk a little bit about the internal one now with with the party itself. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and one of the reasons I I happen to admire your approach to being a member of parliament is that you speak out against your party. And, you know, for whatever reason, whatever the case may be, I mean, substance aside, incidentally, when you speak out against the party I usually tend to agree with you, but, (laughs) but it's it's substance aside, the practice is a good one. And uh, I'm curious what your experience has been with that and, and, you know, what, what the repercussions have been or the consequences have been, or rather what the, what the the benefits and the virtues of it uh, have been. And then I want to do a little bit of self-reflection and media criticism, but first I want to get a sense of, of what your process is and what that's meant for you.
1: I'm not certain that I've got a great answer In so far as it sometimes depends on the issue that electoral reform, I think when I voted differently, but also I wrote an op-ed to apologize for our broken promise. I think that was appreciated by many in my constituency and I felt like it was the right thing to do. I still think it was the right thing to do but I don't know that that was appreciated by all of my colleagues. Sure. <laughs> I, uh, in, in other cases, I will have voted differently and they would shrug their shoulders because it didn't impact them in their own ridings and they didn't have constituents coming to them and saying, why don't you vote differently? We see someone else voting differently, right? And so I think that's what I'm most sensitive to at times. It, it doesn't mean that I'm going to change how I vote, but it it I am sensitive to the fact that my decisions and my voting decisions in particular can impact colleagues and their colleagues that I care for and that I, I am friendly with and that I'm aligned with and I want to work together with. So one's cognizant of of that. And then in terms of repercussion, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the past parliament in particular on the couch of the whip. (laughs) Like it, like, it's not like a, it's not an abnormal interaction starting from 2015, but it's increasingly less normal in that initially, I think there was this, what's, what's Nate doing? Is it because we didn't support his animal bill? And what's, you know, who does, what is it? what Why does, why is he doing this? And I think over time, it's just one of those questions of if I've just met you and you act in a particular way, and I, I don't really know what to expect. And I Do I judge you based upon that one particular interaction that we've had? Okay, fine. But now I've known you for five years and I've seen a much broader set of your advocacy and you voted largely with us, sometimes differently when you've voted differently and stood differently on different issues. You haven't sought to tear us down. And overall, when you look at that team dynamic, I hope that I have been a team player in my own way. Even though I've disagreed at times, and so it gets easier, right? And and you and you carve out that space, and they understand where you're coming from. You're upfront with them when you're when you're going to disagree. That you say, "Here's what I'm going to do, and here's why." And I think communication on on those lines is really important with the WHIPS office in in advance. But I, I don't get the same hard time that I used to get, and it's increasingly easier. And I've certainly heard from colleagues who have, even though they might not have agreed with me in particular instances have said, thank you for doing what you're doing, because it certainly makes it easier for when an issue arises where I want to do the same thing. And I, and I don't want to pretend that I'm the only one. I mean, Wayne Long's disagreed on any number of issues, but there are any number of colleagues of mine who may not do it as often, but they certainly pick their issues that they really care about
0: and, and they stand up and they're vocal about it. Do you think the 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 reaction from the Whips office and from the leader's office would be different if there were 30 MPs doing that? Potentially, I mean, I wonder if there's this sort of idea that you know it's okay for a few folks to 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 do that, but if too many people are doing it, then we're in trouble. And and I wonder, I mean, this doesn't this isn't just a problem within with the Liberal Party. This is a a, a Canadian democracy problem (laughs) that we see across parties, right? I mean, um, you know, I mean, we're watching the Greens right now. Potentially, they would.
1: I mean, we do see in other Westminster systems more parliamentarians willing to be critical of their own parties and their own governments and to vote differently. And so clearly those Westminster systems haven't fallen into and complete and total disarray because of it. So I, I think there is more space in the Canadian context to allow for that than just a handful. I would also say, again, it depends on the issue. And so far as if we're talking about a key priority of the government, and or an issue that really matters to the government and a critical mass of liberal MPs is doing something different than what the expectation is and and what we ran on, then obviously there are real challenges. If on the other hand, and we see some examples, there was a piece of legislation in the last parliament relating to genetic discrimination. Then Minister Wilson-Raybould made her case and caucus disagreed and we voted to pass it. And I don't think any of us regret that decision and I don't think our democracy is worse for it. So I I think there are, there's certainly ample space and capacity in our system to allow for more disagreement.
0: I want to dig into that a little bit deeper in a moment, especially with caucus, because I think a lot of the disagreement happens there and we don't always recognize that externally because, you know, just that because it doesn't happen publicly doesn't mean it's not happening. But I want to first get into the media coverage of when MPs disagree with their party publicly I think politicians get on balance a pretty reasonable treatment from the Canadian media often not harsh enough I, I'm often I think they're a little too close but it, it when when MPs do you know buck the trends buck the norm push back the media coverage of the process is often melodramatic in a way that I find Distasteful and unproductive, because it becomes a process story about the drama of disagreement rather than us saying, "Okay, here's why an MP is breaking on the issue, and here's why we ought to think about it differently." And, and I'm curious, you know, when, when you break with the party or when you disagree publicly or or your colleagues, have you found that um, you know the folks are chasing the process story or the substance story? I think. Um certainly
1: early days it was probably more process and and maybe even more recently it remains process although i think in fairness more recent coverage when i've seen it has not been to highlight some division but to say just as you're saying we should normalize this and it shouldn't be such a big deal and so i think there is maybe an increasing reflection across the media landscape that it's not such a big deal and and frankly i think the fault lies in all quarters, insofar so far as if it was if it wasn't so rare, it wouldn't be covered as a news story at all. And so it's incumbent on us in Parliament to make sure it's it's more common. And I, I you know, it, it has been more substance focused. In, in I can recall media interviews on the motion related to the treatment of the Uyghurs and whether it amounted to genocide. And I, I was asked about the substance of that and not only about the, you know, how I'm disagreeing with the party and why disagreeing with the party, et cetera.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I think that I think that's a critical point. That the more it happens, the less it becomes a story. And and I just, you know, this isn't it bothers me a great deal, which is why I wanted to touch on it, because I think we we sort of we say as you know in the media that we want one thing we want mps to speak their mind We want them to be free when they do we turn it into a melodrama that disincentivizes that behavior and i'm so it's something i as someone who covers this stuff like to point out to my colleagues and to the public at large because also the state of media criticism in this country is pretty weak <laughs> where you know it's it's not uh it is not exactly as robust as it as it might be but i you know that that's a structural problem, and I want to dig now into to the deeper structural problems of of Canadian democracy and MP independence. A couple episodes ago, I talked to Emmett McFarland from Waterloo, and we talked about the Westminster system and critiqued it imminently. We critiqued it on its own merits and demerits, and one of it, we came away with pretty low scores in a lot of ways. And and one of the criticisms was that. You know, you, you're meant to return these individuals to, to the House of Commons to, to speak their mind and to push back. But with the centralization of power in leaders' offices and whips' offices, uh, you, you often don't get that. And you mentioned other Westminster systems. You see more of it in the UK. You see it taken to an extraordinary degree in Australia. And here, not so much. Uh, now, I'm wondering whether you think we can rebalance that and, and how we might go about doing that if so. I think we can rebalance it. I
1: think there was a commitment to rebalance it to some extent, at least. And it has been largely imperfect progress. But we have seen some rebalancing by way of parliamentary committees, as an example, where they aren't perfect in that they're still in this, you know, in this parliament, we see filibustering that we probably wouldn't see, but for government agenda. but we do still see a significant amount of independence. And I, I've heard this from people involved in past parliament. So it said that committees have functioned more effectively and we've seen parliamentarians raise issues in a way that they wouldn't have raised them in past years where they were more tightly controlled. So we've seen some modest rebalancing. And then I think largely, I, I think through this problem quite often, are there rule changes that, that you could make? And the UK has some, systems in place in relation to committee chairs and in relation to how certain committee chairs are selected potentially. or And, and you can work through some rule changes. I know Michael Chong has focused on some of these rule changes. Frank Bayless, a past colleague, was focused on some of these rule changes. Those rule changes are important and we should embrace them. But I also think, and where my focus has has been largely, is culture matters just as much. And if anything, we need the rules are flexible enough today to allow for a significant amount of disagreement and reasonable disagreement. And it really comes down to our willingness to, to act in that particular way and to conduct ourselves the way we want the system to be. And so we should go about changing that culture.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And, and I mean, the, which takes a critical mass, right? I mean, it takes people from across the parties to decide that they're going to want to to push back without becoming an absolute shambles. You know, I mean, the, the state of the Green Party is a bit of an example of that, is that if if it looks like things are disintegrating, then it's not going to incentivize that culture because it's going to just be covered as an utter mess and no one's going to want to go anywhere near it, right? I mean, it's... I think, yeah, so... that. The way we go about
1: disagreeing matters a great deal to the sustainability of the parties which we, which we represent and to the sustainability of the culture we want to create. And I would say I don't want just a culture of members of parliament willing to disagree. Sure, yes, but it would be wonderful to have a culture where members of parliament are disagreeing, laying out their reasons for disagreement, and you think of it in, and you mentioned caucus disagreement. Of course, there's a place to provide one's disagreement in caucus to be vocally critical and to be able to share information behind closed doors in a more forceful way and perhaps a, a less respectful way even, because you you know that there's that freedom and, and it's and it's among colleagues behind closed doors in camera, and and it allows that that kind of freedom. But we, we should also encourage and embrace a sense of reasonable disagreement outside of those walls too, because I think our democracy is better for it. So long as it isn't, as you say, sort of a nasty breakup with a party that is, you know, that maybe undermines the people's perception of Politicians and it's, you know, it turns into a more personal spat or whatever the case might be. But if we focus our disagreement on substantive ideas, and focus the disagreement around where our views part ways and why they part ways then our democracy is better for it. So uh, I think that's the culture change that we we should we should emphasize.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the caucus thing works as long as you're not the, U, the UCP of course, you have somebody basically live tweeting your caucus meeting, which doesn't seem productive. I I uh, I have you know, I like the idea complementary to the to the culture change. I like the idea found in T uh in Thomas Franks from way back Uh, that if you if you had more mps in the absolute number of mps you'd have more mp freedom because you'd have a different ratio of character stick you know if you had double the number of mps you just wouldn't have the same amounts of rewards (laughs) to dole out at committee or cabinet and you'd have a little more sort of raucous caucus which, which you get in the uk and australia but i don't i don't find seconders for that motion very often in this country can you imagine that nobody wants to yeah, i think it's a good idea i think it's, it's a good crazy. idea on two
1: fronts but one unquestionably the evidence i think is clear that where you have a larger number of mp's you you, you do get greater exercising of, of freedom and and dissent and as i say i think that's overall a good thing and we in canada could could, could allow for a larger number of MPs if we change our voting system right so, so that I mean you know, almost you know almost of necessity you need to increase the number of MPs if you were looking to change your voting system to something like MMP for example so you you could get away with both and both would be
0: good and, and it would bring the number of uh, the ratio of, of citizens to representatives down a bit too right I mean which I think we often sort of forget especially in some ridings i mean we we often forget that that you know one of the of the challenges to Canadian democracy is that the the system is meant to be founded on you know rep by pop but in a lot of cases it's just not because you have or not equitably anywhere or equally rather because you have some ridings with a handful of people and other ridings with that are much more dense right and the spread is sometimes uh, i can't remember the exact number maybe 30,000 people something wild like that
1: yeah i think that uh, and and you do i mean it gets back to that conversation around how to adequately represent constituent views and constituent interests. And while we can talk about right answers and we can talk about sort of the approach to, to voting, I mean, there are examples of if it weren't for constituents raising issues. I have a, a young teenager in East York who is a cancer survivor. She she went through 841 days of chemotherapy and after being diagnosed at the age of uh, three and she is now a cancer survivor. She fights on behalf of her friends. She's the most articulate person you'll meet. And I worked with colleagues and others who have constituents who have been affected by childhood cancer. And we got a $30 million commitment to pediatric cancer research in the budget and last platform and now budget. And that on my, on my order of priorities and on my advocacy, it was because of Helena, right? So uh, constituents do inform that process and you're able to really Lean into particular issues when if there are fewer constituents, you just you have the bandwidth then to really focus. Whereas obviously the larger number that you're aiming to represent, and with limited time and, and really finite staff resources, people don't appreciate. I, I went into Senator Booker's office at one point when I was in Washington to meet with one of his staff in the last parliament, and I looked around, and thought, "Holy shit, this is this is an operation." So uh, so yeah, with the with the finite resource we got and it it, it's a hustle to keep up with constituent correspondence at at even before you get to constituent you know raising issues on behalf of constituents and and doing the job as effectively as as you want to
0: you're not meant to say things like this so i'm going to we're just such an utterly cheap country (laughs) and it just drives me it drives me just bananas and you know that you know seen from the thick of it with Malcolm Tucker says you know they don't want you to have they, they would prefer that you lived in a fucking cave they don't <laughs> want you to have nice things they don't want you to have a nice chair they want you to live in a fucking cave and it, it, it's stunning to me that we I got lots of substantive critiques of this country and, and and the government and several layers of government but one of the things that irritates me is that we you know we want better service for our members of parliament we want more for them when people it's like it's like lawyers right you may dislike them as a class but you really like your own especially when you need them and yet we don't want them to have a staff or an office we don't we want the prime minister to fly uh in a cessna we don't we don't want to retrofit 24 Sus- it's just stunning to me that we want the, the service but we just we don't want to pay for it and it gets politicized to a point where it's really counterproductive it's just whereas other countries don't even they don't pay any attention to that
1: <laughs> it does get politicized I, I am i will say of, of two minds in a way uh, by the way my uncle uh, who's now passed but he when i first he wasn't a liberal uh when he when i first became the nominated liberal candidate or even before that in the nomination uh, i was a lawyer before and and he made the joke. Is that a step up or a step down? <laughs> and then when he died, I got two things. I got some uh, silver coins that I had given to him because he was a collector. And he also returned his liberal membership card. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the things that I still have of, of, Char- of Uncle Charlie's. But, uh, but I, I am of two minds insofar as I think you're right that we ought not to be cheap when it comes to this, the ability for us to do the job effectively on behalf of Canadians, and we shouldn't allow our desire for frugality to get in the way of that. At the same time, I, I do worry sometimes, you do want to, trust is really important. And as part of trust, I think that notion of reasonable disagreement is really important to trust. I think honesty in politics is really important to trust, and following through on promises is really important. But equally, you don't want the political class to be perceived as disconnected as elitist and as not not in any way connected to the lives of, you know, the people I went to high school with, the people I I worked with when I was working in restaurants, getting for university. I mean that you, you don't want the political class to be disconnected from the realities of so many Canadians. And so there is a there is probably some balance to be struck there between making sure the resources are there for parliamentarians to be as effective as possible, but also making sure that we are also, we, we don't become disconnected and, and there isn't this sense of, well, we are, we are a different breed and we're deserving of particular entitlements.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's right, that, that there is a balance. And, and I, I remember again being a young liberal and going to some rubber chicken dinner in Peterborough and it was just around the time of the, of the leadership shenanigans the well for those who don't know the the martin <laughs> manly cops leadership shenanigans and i remember being at this thing in peterborough and and you know up comes this minivan and out comes lyle van cleef who i think was the agriculture minister at the time and John Manley, who was the deputy prime minister, was like a 1995 Dodge Caravan. You know, something. Like, <laughs> you've got these. You know, it, we're we're not fancy about this stuff, really beyond beyond the basis. And uh, you know, there is a there is you there is a middle ground that we that we can a, can achieve, I think, without having the the um, finance minister popping out of a of a old Dodge Caravan. <laughs> That's, uh, probably right. That's probably right. <laughs> but I I. Uh, you know, it's funny because we, you know, we are next to the United States too, right? And and I think it's particularly ostentatious and absurd in the case of the U.S. in some cases, um, for different reasons, including being a global hegemon. But um, there's there's certainly got to be a middle ground.
1: Well, a good example when you see the prime minister attacked for having more extensive childcare than most. I, that attack is so frivolous and off the mark because I want the prime minister to be able to focus. I know how hard it is to work and to raise kids at the same time. I've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old and my God, it's hard. And the more support that we can provide the prime minister and and his wife to ensure that they have the capacity to deliver for all of us, then we're all better off. I, I don't want to nickel and dime that. Do I want the prime minister to you know, go to a... Vacation on the Aga Khan's island, maybe not. Right, you know right, I mean? right, so, exactly. So there, there's, but uh, but there's there's no fine tuning those attacks. There is what we've seen, what I've seen in my political, my short political career, at least, is the there are attacks equal on both fronts, and I think it's unfortunate.
0: Yeah, the, the you know I, I'm as <laughs> pretty much as critical of the government as, as anyone you're going to find. I mean, I, I, I have no. No lack of criticisms to to raise against the government, but I try to make them substantive. And when I turn around and see people attacking the childcare, I think that you're the same people who would attack the prime minister for not working if he was spending time with his kids. Right, I mean, exactly. it's, it's, There's just you can't possibly win, and it cheapens the whole the whole discourse. And the actual critiques we should be spending our time on things, well, like electoral reform or or climate policy or you know arms sales to Saudi Arabia. We, we can talk about real things but we spend our time talking about childcare as if we have nothing better to talk about. And by the way, you know, even if that were true, the takeaway would be, let's have great childcare for everybody. Right. <laughs> That's why instead of like, what's this? You know, anyways, it drives me, it drives me bananas, but I want to get into, to liberalism now a little bit and, and your liberalism specifically. I uh, am neither a large L nor a small L liberal. Uh, I'm a, a socialist. And so I see the world through the socialist lens. Uh, you are what I would, and I think others would, would categorize as a progressive liberal, a small L liberals, uh, but I, but I could be off about that. So I'm curious what grounds your, your small L liberalism, but also your large L membership in the, in the liberal party.
1: I am a pr- pretty traditional liberal. insofar far as when I, think back through how i arrive at my core values and the thinking that i've done in relation to philosophy i mean john rawls's original position peter singer ronald dworkin there are thinkers who are in, in the liberal tradition that i have flashed onto and that i certainly read in you know one's formative years is one's thinking through some of these, you know, what are my values and, uh, and, and what do I believe? And so I would say there are pretty core ideas of, and maybe what pushes me in a more progressive direction at times is pretty core ideas of ensuring that there is a minimum standard of living for everyone. And that that should be one of the, we're not, I don't think sort of, the same for everyone, and we should. This notion of every billionaire is a failure, which I'm—I'd be interested in talking to you about because I—I think you hold this view. <laughs> but, I, but I I am more of the view that I care about inequality. I care about that billionaire being a policy failure because there are so many people without, and we need to make sure that we are providing for those who have the least. We need, we need to make sure that our policies are fair and just but we ought not to be tearing people down that in itself doesn't doesn't strike me as a as a useful policy unless it's to tax people to pay because to pay for public goods because frankly right now as it stands and I, and I think this is as it stands there are many people in our society that, that frankly don't have enough to get by and, and that's obvious an obvious political challenge in a country as wealthy as Canada so I I don't know I could, I could probably ramble on even longer but I would say on the big L that when I look to one the history of the Liberal Party and you know whether it is Pierre Trudeau and the Charter or whether it's Lester B Pearson there are certainly leaders throughout the Liberal Party's history that I look to and say I think they they are politicians that I would look up to and when I look at the role that the Liberal Party plays in Canadian history insofar as we're, it's a party that is able to govern with a big tent approach so that there is space to push the party in, into the directions that I care about where it's not as focused on those issues yet. When, and then when, when Trudeau came along and said, I want generational change, I want freer votes and, and I want to empower parliamentarians, I want more grassroots politics, so open nominations, all of that spoke to me as someone who cares about democracy a great deal. And so I thought, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'll throw my name in the nomination. And then 13 months later, I was lucky to be nominated and away we go.
0: How have you found that to, to have uh, played out in the, in the? jeez, in how long has it been now? Seven years since 2015? Or, time is a flat circle. Sort of losing, <laughs> I, I you know, because I... I Everybody runs on sort of renewal and change, and then they they begin to govern, and then it's sort of it becomes uh, this sort of challenge to balance that with with the dictates of the office. I actually, you know, I I think I get a lot of flack from folks on the left for this because I genuinely look at a lot of politicians who offer democratic renewal promises uh, less cynically than they do. I actually believe that a lot of these folks believe in this stuff then get into the job and then say, no way, <laughs> not a chance, uh, because if we do that, we're going to get pummeled. And I think back, you know, this was true of Pierre Trudeau, who came in, in in the 1960s looking for participatory democracy and centralized the PMO in a way that has has done great harm to democracy. You know, Preston Manning, bless his heart, certainly tried in the 1980s and 90s, and the Chrétien government sort of raked him over the coals for it, ultimately. Uh, Anne McClellan speaks... I think warmly, if I recall, of 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 getting questions in advance from from uh, the Reform Party, but then of course that didn't do the Reform Party any good. So I'm wondering how you've w- what that experience has been from you know 2015 to 2021, whether or not those changes have been sufficient. I guess it
1: depends upon the issues that one focuses on. So if I look to some of the reasons that I got involved and I look to poverty reduction as an example, then I think the Canada Child benefit has been significant. I have seen over time significant progress towards not a full-on basic income yet, but we're seeing improvements to a benefit for the working poor that I've really been focused on since 2016. And incrementally, I've seen it expand from, it wasn't automatic, now it's automatic. It was 1.2 a 1.2 billion benefit when we got into office. It's now going to be an almost $4 billion benefit after this uh, this budget cycle. So, you know, you see improvements there, improvements to GIS for seniors. When you look at climate action, there's an area where are we where we need to be yet? No, but we are we have moved incredibly quickly. And I would say we've made really meaningful progress in a way that. I don't think most Canadians appreciate, frankly, when you when you look at the raw numbers of when we took office, projected 2030 emissions were 815 megatons. And if you if all policies hold and the budget is followed through on and we're able to maintain government through the next election, whenever it might be, absent any additional action, we're looking at under 500 megatons. So we're looking at, again, significant reductions heading into 2030. And again, more needs to be done. And that's not to say the pressure shouldn't should relent, but there's been really significant progress. On the democracy file, I would not point to really significant progress in some ways in that I think the committee changes have been important. I think that I the freedom given to members has been important, and it's been important to me, I think, in my writing and my constituency, certainly. But I, but I think there's room for that culture to develop, and I think that is an important change that, that ought to be you know uh, at least acknowledged, if not celebrated. But I think the reforms to the Senate have been really important. I see O'Toole now saying they'll make it an elected Senate. Frankly, we don't have to fix something that isn't broken. And the Senate functions as effectively as it has for, for as long as I've followed politics uh, today. And on the electoral reform file, obviously it was burned to the ground unceremoniously in the worst way possible. So I have nothing, I don't know, I, I have no defense there particularly. particular. I mean, we can get into the, the details of The referendum is where the consensus was between conservatives and NDP and the prime minister and the liberal party were very opposed to a referendum, thinking it was too divisive. I I kind of throw up my hands and say we could have easily had a referendum at the same time as the last election. It wouldn't have been overly complicated. It wouldn't have been expensive. It was the least we could have done to to fulfill our promise. But on transparency as it relates to democracy and as it relates to access to information, I, w- I would consider that largely a failed promise as well. We, we did have a piece of legislation in the last parliament to open, to become more open and transparent. But to your point, governments, when they are in power, parties, I should say, when they're in government and in power, there is not the same incentive to call for transparency and to act consistently with full transparency. So when we promise to be the most open and honest government in Canadian history... I don't know, you know, or maybe only if all the other governments were more secretive. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. There, there there have been obviously initiatives in relation to access to information, as I say, and there have been initiatives to become more open by default, but I I don't think it has been I, I don't think that's I'm not gonna knock on doors in the next election and say what a success that has been, I, you know, I, I don't think there's been as meaningful progress on that file as we've seen in other cases. And, and even where we get the criticism, I, I think there's right rightful criticism as as it relates to climate action and rightful criticism as it relates to reconciliation and rightful criticism that we haven't done enough on ending homelessness and more, but we've made, you know, we've made meaningful progress on all of those files. I don't know that I would pat ourselves on the back in quite the same way for, for access to information reform. <laughs>
0: No, I, I was going. I was going to bring up access to information. It's not something I do as part of uh, of my job, but um, my colleagues and friends certainly do. And I don't think there's uh, a lot of praise. No, there's not. It, look, it, on that file, it, it's fundamentally broken, right?
1: Yeah, on, and on that file, the people we should care about the most are journalists because we should be facilitating that kind of transparency and accountability as much as possible. And when journalists are United in saying it's not easy to do our jobs, there are too many obstacles, and the system is broken. We should listen to them
0: at the risk of of sounding self interested uh, and biased i I agree <laughs> <laughs> i I want to mention very briefly your podcast but but I want to close on it on a different question that I had intended to close on because we're coming up on time, but you know you have a podcast on commons which you talk policy include, with a variety of people, including Don Davies from the NDP. So I would just want to flag for folks that uh, they ought to check it out. But I want to close on the question of committees, which uh, you had me thinking about. Uh, I'm watching committees closely in this parliament. Oh, you uh, poor man. Yes. I, tell me about it. They don't give me danger pay. I get the same amount whether I watch them or not. And yet here <laughs> here I am spending my days doing this. And I, you know, I watch them in 2015 to 2019 as well but you know i'm a big supporter of minority of proportional representation and of minority governments and coalition governments when possible but obviously in this country we don't get a lot of those one really federally uh i assume you're at least broadly committed to minority parliaments if you're a supporter of pr is that right i said when we
1: first were elected in my opening speech in this parliament that i guess so not our first election but after 2019 that minority parliaments hold incredible promise and i pointed to i mean i've already mentioned pearson once but when Mm -hmm. you think back to what that government was able to accomplish in five years it's pretty incredible the 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 stamp they have on canadian history and and canadian society even today and so they, they they hold great promise but it really depends upon how we conduct ourselves uh, and and the approach we take in those minority situations. And I think we've accomplished a great deal in this minority parliament in the sense of responding to the COVID crisis and the supports that have been made available to businesses and individuals. But there, if you look at committees in particular, I think they've gone sideways, sideways in, a, in a number of ways.
0: Total shit show. I, th- this is what I this is what I wanted to get to because I think you're absolutely right that is it really is a matter of how the par- how parliamentarians choose to work together or not, and and one of the things I watched the, you know the development of of legislation around COVID and and the NDP's input into the emergency responses and thought okay good this is how this is supposed to work we have meaningful changes that are coming. Uh, from this, and that is good for the country. Then I turn to committees and see not just a bunch of nonsense from across the board, including on the government side, but the Americanization of committees as if they're designed to be investigatory bodies uh, and and the torquing of committees. And I worry that this is going to become the new norm when we have minority parliaments, that, that people are going to try to hijack committees uh, to to disrupt the process and it's going to undermine the whole value of a minority parliament. I'm curious from, from, as a government side MP, if you've seen what your perspective is on, on the committee process under the current minority parliament. Hmm. I've seen it work. I, we had,
1: and while committees are not best placed for investigatory purposes at all times, they, do, they can shine an important light on particular malpractice. And they can also bring an important public accountability role. And and so when we saw the national grocers all conveniently cancel pandemic pay around the same time, we hauled in the CEOs of those national grocers. And it wasn't just me giving them a hard time. It was members from all parties giving them a hard time. And we were united in that. And that's when committees really function effectively, I would say, is when there is that sort of unity of purpose that that transcends partisan politics. And in the last parliament, I had a similar experience working with Charlie Angus from the NDP, working with Bob Zimmer and Peter Kent from the Conservatives, as we went down this rabbit hole of Cambridge Analytica and had Facebook before us and had the little Canadian company that was affiliated with... Uh, Um, Cambridge Analytica before us on a number of occasions as well. And so we were able to do not investigatory work because ultimately the privacy commissioner was able to do a deeper dive, but we were able to bring, I think, greater public scrutiny to the issue and work across party lines to raise the profile of the need to update our privacy laws and to ensure that our laws reflect reality where Canadians and people around the world increasingly live their lives online. And so we need new rules. And, and new platform governance. And so I, I, committees can function really effectively when you get that buy-in, but where the marching orders are attack or the marching orders are defend at all costs, either way, then the system breaks down. And so I think you saw that with the WE charity issue as an example. Yes, there, there was reason for public scrutiny. Yes, there was reason to ask really hard questions for a particular amount of time and then that time passed and those questions continued and the flailing about continued and the politicization of the issue continued and it it wasn't proportionate to the matter at hand and I think it got in the way of committees doing their job and we're all humans so what happens is bridges get burnt and it's really hard to restore that sense of cooperation and purpose when you have some of these really destructive, you know, um, really destructive issues come before committee or where certain members or certain parties really push it beyond what's reasonable.
0: And, and drag staff into it, right? I mean, I think this is a, a, not just a problem with the, with the minority parliament in, in this particular uh, parliament. It's a problem of, of declining ministerial accountability and responsibility, where we just don't properly hold ministers to account, but now you get staff dragged in front of these committees for for a bit of a show in ways that I don't think are particularly productive. Even though I invite the scrutiny of the government, I'm all for it. But I I worry that it takes some of the heat off the ministers and, and the prime minister and starts to put it on staffers.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I, I haven't turned my mind too much to what staff have attended. I've not had to my recollection, staff attend before my committee. So I haven't, I haven't turned my attention too closely to that. But the, I think you're right. And I think you are right. Also, we don't have a culture when we when we think of culture, when we think of our Westminster systems, and we think of empowering parliamentarians. Well, we could also take a deeper dive into how our cabinets function. And we are, and this is almost certainly because of the proximity to the United States and just the impact of their politics on ours. But we don't have the same sense of ministerial responsibility because so much of the blame lands on the prime minister when in many cases, what we would want to see, I think is more devolvement of power across cabinet that cabinet ministers have particular responsibilities And therefore, when they fail in those responsibilities, it's the minister that ultimately is responsible. The minister may well change, and the government is not affected in quite the same way. Whereas any scandal in Canadian politics, regardless of the minister, ultimately lands squarely in the lap of the prime minister, and that becomes the focal point.
0: Right. Yeah. And, of course, it it rarely results in anything productive. I, I just... You know, I want accountability and scrutiny as much as, as anybody, but I, I would just, I wish we could do it in a more productive way, but that's a, that's a different issue that, that brings us to time. I could, I could talk about this for, I, I could go full Castro and just talk about this for 14 hours in a row without blinking or, or taking a sip of water, but yeah,
1: it's going to turn into a four hour podcast series,
0: <laughs> but it's just going to be, you know, Joe Rogan will start just riffing on science and making nonsense up as we go. Uh, millions of people will like.
1: I, uh, I I have no I have no cannabis near me. I I um, uh, so I can't go for the four hours. I I uh, it was my birthday yesterday, and my wife got me a number of uh, beverages um, that I, I moved away from smoking and now consume beverages largely instead. And uh, my son helped me with like the opening of the gifts, and he. He sees the beverages, but uh, I don't use the language of cannabis around him, so he thinks it. Uh, for whatever reason, this is what I landed on. But they he he knows of them as Canada beverages. <laughs> so he's like, "Oh, Canada beverages," and I was like, "Yes, yes, son, that's what they are."
0: <laughs> oh, that that is that is glorious. I I eased into our conversation today. This this may not this may or may not shock listeners, but I eased into our conversation today with a couple of hours of Borderlands three with a friend of mine uh, who lives in Spain and a couple of uh, uh great lakes brewery beers we don't do uh was this podcast is very generously sponsored by interact we don't have any other uh sponsors but i constantly plug beer companies <laughs> sort of without thinking about it <laughs> but i uh t- today was a uh a pompous ass english ale day for me which i think people will find uh absolutely fitting but
1: <laughs> that's very nice i my my drink of choice is uh, the lemon soda water houseplant. Oh, what is? Yeah, I put, a, I put It's a. It's just completely inoffensive cannabis beverage. It's just like drinking soda water. It's two and a half milligrams, so it, you know it doesn't uh, doesn't make me pass out and and feel like I'm an undergrad, and it's just
0: nice. Well, that that's a perfect note to end <laughs> on. I think that is. <laughs> is the ideal way to call time on on what's been a very interesting productive uh, discussion so first of all thank you very much for for joining me here today yeah thanks for having me and as always my thanks to mira ahmad carolyn smith and aaron reynolds each of whom makes the podcast not only possible but far better than it would be there doing the real work behind the scenes to make this podcast um, great and possible and i thank them Always, and to each and every one of you, wherever you may be, whatever you may be doing. I hope in the latter er- uh, days of the pandemic, you're hanging in there as best as possible. If you happen to have a Pfizer hookup, give me a call. I want out of this. And otherwise, we'll see you here in a couple of weeks. Hey, I'm Jody Butts, host of At Risk a podcast show on the 2020 network that seeks to help us better protect the things we care most about during these dynamic and challenging times. At Risk is about better understanding the role of risk in our everyday lives and how best to manage it. I speak with interesting Canadians like Astronaut Colonel Chris Hadfield, Olympian Haley Wickenheiser, Entrepreneur Tarek Haddad, and Canada's 18th Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Brian Mulroney. Do you really care about something if you're not thinking about how you could lose it? You can find At Risk on your favourite podcast app or on the 2020 network. Thanks for listening.